0: So, to tie in with the theme of open education, we chose two presentations that showcase the work of two of the flagship open education projects at the OU, which are OpenLearn and FutureLearn. So, we will start with Katrina and Leanne presenting some work on the OpenLearn learners. Thank you.
1: Good morning, um, my name is Katrina Law, I work in the Open Media Unit at the Open University. The Open Media Unit delivers the free learning um, to the public, and we do that through BBC Broadcast and through our flagship website OpenLearn. Um, I'm presenting with my colleague Leanne Perriman this morning, so I'll we'll be sharing the presentation. I'm going to have to stand back here to press buttons.
0: Shall I do your buttons for
1: you? Yeah, that would be brilliant, Thank you. <laughs> So just an introduction to um, what OpenLearn is. It's a website that we launched in 2006 thanks to a grant from the Hewlett Foundation and ostensibly it's to bring together many different formats of free learning uh, for everybody. It's completely open. Um, We like to think it's engaging, award winning, we know it's award winning and it's a trusted destination as well so all the content on the website is Open University content. Um, This is just a quick run through to give you an idea of what is up there. We've got about 850 free courses on OpenLearn at the moment. They vary completely in length from just a few hours to 100 hours um, and over all of the subjects that we'll find in our curriculum and more as well. Um, We've also just released uh, digital badges onto some of our courses which I'll talk about at the end of the presentation And we have short interactives as well, so we have these little pieces of learning that really are meant to inspire and grab people's attention. So you might come in because you've looked on Google for a particular thing, you don't even think you're learning, probably the true definition of informal learning. You're looking for information, you find yourself on OpenLearn, and and lo and behold you're looking at an exciting uh, interactive piece of learning about a particular subject. There are also blog pieces as well, written by our own academics, and everything in between that and a piece of uh, formal learning in an informal space. So why do we do this? We have a Royal Charter which says that we really have to do this, and we've had this since the beginning of the Open University. And the way we used to do it was those BBC programmes at four o'clock in the morning with the classic kipper ties. So those were our original uh, gift, if you like, as part of our Royal Charter. And if you read the small print of the Royal Charter, we are um, required by God to do this activity. So it's really important that uh, we have have to give uh, context, uh, free learning into the community, which we like to remind ourselves of from time to time. So it has a social mission and a business mission. That social mission is to reach people who aren't um, otherwise able to afford education or don't consider themselves um, in a position to study in a higher education environment. And we have a business mission as well. And that business mission in the university is called a journey from informal to formal learning. So that's bringing people in from this informal space, inspiring them, building their confidence and taking them through to become open university students. And that can be something that people come into the site and are not really thinking that that's what they're doing consciously and that's what they end up doing. Or they're coming into the site and they're seeing this very much as a taster environment, something that they know they're going to use it to navigate their way through subjects and levels to decide what they might want to sign up to. And that's something that Leanne's going to talk about a bit later. So, we're very proud to say that we release pretty much everything on open and under a Creative Commons license, and we've just upgraded this to version 4. Um, I'm blogging this week about why we choose to use Creative Commons and why we're not afraid of it as well. Um, we've updated our non commercial clause to make sure that in the world of MOOCs and monetization, it's still okay to release whole courses under Creative Commons. And Creative Commons means that the particular license we have. CC by NCSA, which means you will attribute us if you want to use our content, you will link back where you can, you can reuse that content and republish it, you just can't make any money out of it. We know because we've got tracking mechanisms on OpenLearn that we've recently installed that there are about 300 control C or cut um, actions every day, so we know people are using our content, we don't know where they're pasting it yet. Um, but we know that people are copying it, and we know from our data how many people are actually looking at it as well. So we're very happy to release our content, and it means that we know it's widely used elsewhere. And that means people can adapt it for their own purposes. So, why do we think OpenLearn is, is important? Um, we've had 30, actually, we've had 30, almost 37 million visitors since the site launched. So, we'll be making a big song and dance when we hit, when we, uh, hit the 40 million mark. Um, And we have around 4.5 million new visitors each year, so it is widely used. They're mostly in the UK, but we have a considerable international audience as well. Um, About 13% of people who come into OpenLearn go on to inquire about study at the OU, so they don't necessarily become a student, but they make that first inquiry. And that first inquiry can be a very long process as well, but we recognise 13% are going into the Open University. And we also know from the research that we do, that we'll be talking about, that we are having a, an impact from a social mission perspective. We know that we're broadening people's interests, and we are reaching um, a demographic group that's very pleasing from a widened participation agenda. So, yes, me? Okay. So, why do we research Openland? We research Openland because uh, there are so many people there to be researched who've We know from the comments we receive that they have very interesting stories to tell. They also nag us and remind us when they don't think our site is useful enough, which we respond to. But on the whole, um, we really like to know who these people are, what their motivations are. We can get as many numbers in as possible. We can see how many millions are coming in and where they're going and where they live, but really we want to know more about their learning. How does that learning take place and what inspires them and how might we better serve them? And something that Leanne and I have talked about in the past is this notion of a rapid commissioning approach. In the world of formal learning, we have quite a long production route, several years, from the inception of a course through to its um, live publication to students. Whereas in informal learning, we have a very rapid commissioning approach. And that means that we can take feedback from our research and act on it very quickly. And um, and that's quite a a satisfying environment to be in. Um, So we have collaborated with the OER Research Hub, which is in the Institute of Educational Technology, also a Hewlett-funded project at the OU, and we set up a number of surveys in 2013 and 14, and which we're about to repeat, to really review this demographic profile of our informal learners. Um, we learnt about the students using the site, the teachers, and those just looking for information. Those people who would class themselves as informal learners. Um, we want to know. We un- tried to understand how we were meeting their needs or not, and we looked at how we were impacting them and their motivations to take up formal study. We also wanted to know what their challenges were when using the platform, which was a big thing for us. We knew we had to improve usability. Um, We want to know where they're going next and what they're searching for. And at that point, I'm gonna hand over to
0: Leanne. So, over the two years of surveying the users of OpenLearn, we found out a lot about them. And we've recently been able to then make some comparisons between the two surveys to see if the demographic of the users is changing and to see if their priorities, preferences and practices are changing. A little overview here of who's using OpenLearn, or rather, who's using OpenLearn and completing our surveys. That shouldn't be forgotten. So aggregated across the two surveys, interestingly, 17% of people are under 25. So there is quite a a young user base for OpenLearn. 55% over 45 18% of people are retired, and um, there is some clear evidence that those people are otherwise excluded from um, higher education, as I'll I'll mention later. 21% don't have English as their first language. I'll talk a little bit more about international students later. 48% 48 aren't full-time employed. Quite a lot of part-time employed people, also unwaged people as well. 23% 23% of Open Learn users do consider themselves to have a disability. And um, of the users of Open learning, we've surveyed, 84% say they study for personal interest, amongst other uh, motivations as well. And I'll come back to that in a minute too. So, we've, for the past two years, been um, embedding our analysis of the Open Learn Survey data in a particular framework we developed for the 2013 survey that combines looking at user motivations with thinking about the benefits to institutions of having an open content platform and how that might work in terms of a business model. So... um, 2007 OECD report on OER sustainability has been uh, a reference point for us in that it says that open content platforms and OER can function as a showcase for an institution in attracting um, new formal learners to their paid-for provision, in functioning as a taster, so both new students and uh, existing students can test content for level and for um, subject specific reasons also uh, the OECD report identifies probably a fairly obvious factor, altruism the fact that sharing knowledge for free is a good thing to do it's the right thing to do Um, Paul Stacey has written quite a lot on um, OER business models, he um, is with Creative Commons that Katrina has mentioned thus far and he adds another facet that OER can accelerate learning and and we found that this is happening for both new students to the EU and for existing informal learners and formal learners. And Now I'm going to dig into the data a little bit more to show you how these factors are being evidenced in the 2014 and 2013 survey data. So firstly, OpenLan as a showcase. Comparing the two years, we've seen a decrease in people who are saying that they will start the another free course as a result of using OpenLearn, just 2%, from 86 to 84%. But an increase, interestingly, for OpenLearn as a um, showcase for the OU, an increase of 35% to 42% in people who will take a paid-for course as a result of <coughs> studying um, OpenLearn materials. Other um, significant findings there. Sharing Open University materials with others, that rose from 54% in 2013 to 61% in 2014. And in terms of a showcase function, obviously that's broadening awareness of OpenLearn and of the OU and giving other people the opportunity to see the quality of the OU's materials. And the last figure... 81 to 83% of people who will be recommending the Open University's food content to others. And a couple more figures down at the bottom. The fact that 45% of formal students had used OpenLearn to find out more about the OU and 22% of the formal students surveyed hadn't actually heard of the OU before using OpenLearn. is another strong indication that OpenLearn is working as a showcase for the university. Moving on to the function as a taster, we found that a growing number of people, and this is one of the more um, impactful changes between the 2013 and 2014 surveys, a growing number of people are using it to try university level content. So this went from 42% of respondents in 2013 through to 67, so that's a 25% increase, that's Pretty, pretty significant. I'll, I'll speculate about why that might be in a minute. Thirty-one um, percent of the people in 2014 said that they used OpenLearn as an influence on choosing their current course. Now, the two quotes I've picked up here give an indication of why this change, this increase, may be. Uh, Ghana left is saying, "I definitely <coughs> wouldn't have taken the risk of paying so much to do a degree if I hadn't been able to test the water through OpenLearn." So I think it's the climate of the fee increases in England over the past two years has excluded some people from university study. And OpenLearn allows people to test the waters, allows people to um, try things out before making a pretty costly financial commitment to, to pay for study. Um, again, uh, the lady on the right saying that... It, it, the free extracts gave her confidence to enroll in her first module. And also, an p- opportunity to practice time management skills. So, it's um, various ways in which the open the materials are functioning as a taster. Moving on to altruism, there is overwhelming evidence in both surveys that providing free resources <laughs> widens access to learning. Um, 80% of people in 2013, 95% of people in 2014 had said that a main attraction of using OpenLearn is that it's free of charge, that it doesn't cost money to study, and that's perhaps not not surprising. But digging a little a little more into the data, we found a lot of different categories of people who are um, attracted by the, the low cost. I mentioned earlier the um, the people who are retired. Are using the Chap on the right, thanking us providing a resource for people that can't get to a facility, sort of study facility, due to physical and financial difficulty. Um, also talking about being closed out of opportunities and being excluded from the workforce if you haven't got access to quality education. A couple of other people there fell into open there because I was priced out of other studies. And under the person there making the link with fee biases. So I think that the altruism argument is really really clear. Now interestingly, um, one of my um, specialist research area is the use of OER in low income countries or developing countries. So I was interested to have a look at the data and sort of cut the cake according to the International Monetary Fund classification for developing countries and found that 10% of the users completing our survey were from developing countries and this map gives you an indication of the spread the big green blob is India the picture of India South Africa um, quite a few people in Ethiopia Burma or Myanmar so um, a, a pretty big spread now these users gave us a few clear messages some wanted more printing abilities because of internet connectivity problems. They want to just be able to download or print the content so that they can study at their own leisure without an internet connection more reliably at, across the platform. There are possibilities here for future um, research and work and perhaps a collaboration with the Open Unit in localising the resources because the, you know, the um, resources are. English language and really the full power of OER is unlocked through localization, not only translation into different languages, but localization culturally, geographically and pedagogically. So there's potential there for I, I think releasing more of the potential of the Open to Learn OER. But also you know, something for the future. But it really is um, interesting, the, the spread of people using the resources from, from developing them. Now, one of the most striking changes over the two years of OpenLearn surveys is in the numbers of people, both um, particularly here, formal um, students, who said that using OpenLearn and OER in general had um, improved their study performance and improved their satisfaction with the learning experience. Just pulling a few out here... um, A growth of 53% to 72% of people said that they had increasing interest in the subjects taught as a result of using um, Open Learn. A change from 14% to 36% were people who said that their grades improved. And that's a a huge jump, really. And... It's really interesting to dig down and find out why, why that is the case, and we'll be doing more um, in-depth research to try and to, to, to find some reasons for this. Confidence gains increased from 37% to 65%. Increased um, independence of self-reliance. So the idea of um, being able to learn by yourself, to be able to find content that suits one's needs and, and learn alone unsupported went from 39% in 2013 through to 56%. Increased collaboration with peers, that saw an increase. Enthusiasm for future studies saw an increase. And significantly for educational institutions, remember earlier I mentioned business models and making openness work from a financial standpoint there was an increase from 29% to 58% of people who say that they're more likely to complete their course of study as a result of using open learning resources or OER. And that's got significant um, implications for retention in institutions, which is obviously a really big issue in terms of business models for openness. So, I'll hand back to Petrina now, and she'll move into another area of our research to do with, Soft accreditation and budget.
1: Which is that? So, obviously, something happened between 2013 and 2014 um, to make, see those changes on the graph. And some of those things we did, some of the things just happened um, because the, the general landscape has changed in terms of free learning and, and its offering across the world. I'm going to talk a bit about those differences and also how we responded in 2013. Um, on the website in terms of functionality and also the the learning and subjects that we offered. So if we compare, we can see that in the, um, well, if we look at 2014, for example, last year, 75% of learners said yes or maybe that they'd be prepared to pay for content online. And of those, 85% selected online courses with certificates or qualifications. So because we have this notion that people can't afford to study in the way they used to be able to, um, for economic reasons because of the way we've changed the, the, the pricing structure for uh, our formal students um, there is this growing sense that people want to pay for something else something in between and maybe that's just an exam at the end of some free learning or perhaps that's something that will provide them credit which is something else that we're exploring as well so you start your journey informally and then you come on to something that may be accredited and validated by us but most interesting we think was uh, what would you like to see the complete change in the qualitative data that we got all of the all of the comments were about I want something to recognize my achievements I would like a statement of participation I want a certificate I want you to be able to <clears throat> I want to show someone that I did something so really in in terms of kind of our research and looking back at what we used to call mm-hmm. informal learning or non formal learning um, we think that this, the definition may have changed quite a lot mm-hmm. quite rapidly recently and the way that we've described that is we know that informal learning is something that you may not really be necessarily conscious that you're doing, or some people argue that you're conscious that you're doing it, but you didn't necessarily make the decision to get there, the conscious decision to get there. Um, But no one's taking attendance. You're just there on your own, doing your own thing. Very much now, we think we've moved to an identified informal learning environment. Basically, one where I want recognition. I want other learners to know who I am. Perhaps I want to participate in a group. Less so with informal learners. A lot of informal learners don't really like that social interaction necessarily. Some do, um, but on the whole, they shy away from it. Um, This identified notion of informal learning meaning that I want the world to see that I did this thing online. No shame, I did it for free. Here's this thing I did off my own bat. So We saw this change, as I was saying in the graph. What did we do internally to perhaps bring about that change? Well, we've created an entire suite of badged open courses. We did this off the back of a pilot that we ran in 2012, actually, um, which was something that would really motivate learners because they are in an open, unsupported environment. There are no tutors on open No one's there driving you on. There's no one to talk to. We simply couldn't resolve such a massive undertaking, over 850 courses. So a badging proposition is this idea that you're motivated to to get to the end of your course or you're incentivised, and there is a subtle difference. Um, We worked very hard to improve the usability of OpenLearn and um, we also provided much better signposting to learners who were interested in taking their journey further and also to navigate their way through to other pieces of learning that may interest them. We made it much more obvious what the site was for and really had a a good look at ourselves to say, okay, there's just so much stuff here, I've come in off a BBC programme, I I don't know if I want to look at this thing. So we, we really tried to understand more from the demographics, we know who these people are, we know what they're looking for, how might we hone our offering? And also, we looked very much at the whole syndication notion. We put our free content out onto as many platforms as we can. We we put content out onto iTunes U, onto YouTube, onto Biblio, Audio Boom. And we could see, and when we ran the Open Learn surveys, we also ran the same surveys across all of our third party channels, which collectively bring in another 5 million learners, uh, 5 million viewers of our content every year. And we could see very clearly completely different demographics across those different platforms. And OpenLearn remained the most interesting demographic for us, both in terms of the fact that it was definitely our widely participation group, but also that they were more likely to study with us as well. So that's the work, a work from another study. Um, so, digital badges. A photograph on the left is from a poor unsuspecting scout that I found in the street and asked to photograph his shirt. He was a little bit taken aback, but <laughs> there we go. Um, and on the, on, the, on the right you can see, those of you who are old enough or perhaps from the UK, recognise the blue Peter <coughs> badge. Um, and really this notion that we've all kind of grown up with, that this badge is a thing I got and uh, I did this thing and I want to wear it, I want to show people. Um, we see that it's a, 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 motive, a motivating factor. Um, evidence of skills and achievements in a variety of settings and we can see that the application of digital badges is very broad and we sit in one particular niche at the moment I think because we're open and informal and unsupported so we're using badges in a certain way on OpenLearn. So we've um, mainly focused on a suite of access courses and by access I mean pre-HE Very much that recognising that those learners want to perhaps come in, they need that extra boost, that motivator, that confidence. So we think that the courses that we've we've launched, built on our pilots, will help to uh, bring some study skills to those who need it and some basic subjects, maths, English, learning to learn, first steps in HE and also about how to get along in the workplace. It's all very well giving you all the subjects, but how can you make that application in the workplace? So our digital badges can be displayed in the MyOpenLearn profile and they are open badge so they will be from the Mozilla Open Badges backpack also through LinkedIn, Wordpress and Twitter, and hopefully more places in the future. What did we learn from our um, pilot that we ran? Well we know that um, students, or we know that we uh, badges enhance brand and reputation, we're very glad that we've got our own new logo on them because they have required an assessment to get them. Um, we know that that they are used as a taster because they sit on OpenLearn. And we know that we're reaching an underserved group, which I'll come to in a minute. And also, the thing that's very little understood about badges is how that application to an employer might look. Do you show that badge to an employer? Does that have any currency with the employer? As I've mentioned, this is how we display the badges. You'll get a printed statement as well or a certificate from the Open University and you can show your badge in a number of different places through a public version of your profile as well. And these are just the first suite of subjects that we're launching. There are four more going live by the end of this year and several more next year. These are whole courses, though. These aren't just snippets of of, uh, modules. They are whole courses with pieces of assessment. This is what we're asking people to do. There are 24 hours of learning. There are eight quizzes, so one at the end of every week. But at the end of weeks four and eight, you're required to pass a quiz. And this is all done through Moodle quizzes. If you pass those quizzes, you get your badge. Um, you also must have read every single page of the course as well so it has required you to sit down and having done all the badge courses I can honestly say you can't bodge them you can't just sit there clicking through you really have to think even if you thought you knew everything from your school maths you may have to stop and think so um, they really do uh, your dog can't get a badge which I think was the concern previously that your dog could get a badge Um, I'm happy to say we don't think so Um, and we needed that because we were allowed to put the OU logo onto the badge, which is important to us to show that we've awarded it. We think it's worth something. So as I alluded to, the pilots showed us a great deal of information, some incredibly surprising data, actually. And this explains why we focus on an access curriculum for our badge open courses that sit within OpenLearn as a a kind of a version of an open course. So we know that from OpenLearn, 36% hold an undergraduate qualification. Of those who undertook our pilot... Uh, sorry, on learn, 56% on the whole have an undergraduate qualification. Those looking at the badge courses in the pilot had uh, only 36% showed a, an undergraduate qualification, so much, much less qualified. Uh, 12% of them were retired, they were a, a younger group, but incredibly 31% of them dec- declared a disability. This is over several thousand people, and that really surprises. us. Um, and of them in the learning to learn course, 40% declared a disability. Um... We really felt strongly that our focus for digital badging had to be around the widening participation group. Um, Not only were they important to us from getting them into our access courses, but just because they were the neediest and also uh, they found these courses. We have no marketing budget and free learning. They were self-selected. So the next steps to evaluation are quite vast. If we could just clone ourselves, we could cut the data in so many ways. In terms of badges, uh, of the badges that we've launched, we have initial data at the moment, which I hope we can report on in the summer. But we really are looking very much at how people are motivated to get their badge, why they're motivated to get their badge, just to see if there's differences. I can see very clearly at the moment there's differences between the different subjects. There are different reasons for taking different subjects subjects in digital badging. Do they value their certificate more than their digital badge? It's very clear at the moment that they are providing very different functions. The badge is the thing you want to get, it's your, it's your incentive, it's the thing that's going to get you to the end of the course. But if you're interested in showing something to an employer, you're going to show them that certificate. So the badge is much more about a personal motivating tool. The certificate much more about trying to get along in the workplace. So those are our initial findings. Um, we're going to continue to review this landscape of identified informal learning. We're also probably going to be piloting ideas around, okay, we've found that this group wants to pay for more learning, perhaps... What would they want to pay for and how could we validate those informal learners to take them in to some kind of accredited world perhaps, something that we, we're thinking about piloting. You've done your informal learning piece, we can see you have to demonstrate your skills through badge courses, where can we take you next? Um, and many more things besides, I'm looking at Annie Bryan at the back of the room who's also doing work from the surveys um, to identify the disabled learners to see um, how we have served or not served them as well as we could specifically on OpenLearn. And we'll be running the surveys again this year. I think one of the key things that we noticed very much when we were looking at the comparisons in the data that we haven't mentioned here that I should probably just add is that in terms of search terms, we've gone from a structure on OpenLearn which is very much driven by subject. We're going to be turning that on its head so the 2014 recommendations are a completely different suite of things we're going to be addressing. And we're going to be changing those, that top-level structure to reflect the type of thing people want to do. So it's not so much that people are coming in and looking for something in the arts world or, or science and technology. They want free courses. This notion that they, they just want a free course, that came out of nowhere. And I, well, I think it's come out of the fact that there are so many MOOC platforms now. People just have this idea, I want to do a free course, not I particularly want to learn about X or Y. So we've really we're going to change that whole taxonomy if you like to I want to do a free course I want to improve my skills at work I want to improve my skills for study I want to look at videos all of that kind of approach the taxonomy for the subject matter will still remain but it's really much more about now what I want to do and how I want to be awarded for my learning I think that's us thank
0: you thank you you. Okay, have you got any questions for uh, Daniel?
2: Shall
3: we do? <laughs> I had a question about the um, survey. I mean, a lot of the data you report is, is excellent. It's exactly what we'd want to be true. But obviously, presumably the people who hang around to do the survey are the people who kind of hang around OpenLearn a lot and therefore quite like it. Do you have any way to reach the people who kind of looked at OpenLearn briefly and disappeared?
1: We tried to put the survey into as many different types of learning as possible. So it went out in our newsletter, but also we could put it in courses, several pages into a course so we could capture people who dedicated to X number of mm-hmm. hours of learning. We also put links in for the really short pieces of interactive. So people have come off of the BBC, I've, I've watched this thing on TV with the OU, I've Googled it, I've ended up on OpenLearn, take our survey. so we, we tried as much as was possible to get Everyone from that spectrum of looking looking for information, right through to having committed to studying a course. I I would agree that it's not perfect, but it was the best that we could do with uh, very inexpensively running surveys.
3: Um, I'm interested in the the transition. We're almost. We're very interested in the transition from informal learning to more formal learning. Okay. I was just wondering what are the challenges that we, we're anticipating that our students may find if they move through this badge certificate world to so then move into a, a more formal case. Because I think time organisation is a different set of skills when you move into formal learning. And it's a question of are we provi- are you, does the badge you can give those students those skills necessary to
2: succeed in a more formal learning environment?
1: Well, it's a very good question and uh, one that we are evaluating now. We're just about to run a massive survey across our formal students to find out from them which of them studied informally first because the hypothesis could run, we've given them too much confidence and they can't, they can't cope. We piloted it, or, or we'd like to think that we've given them sufficient confidence and they're better retained, but we don't know. So uh, we only, you kind of see them to the end of that journey. We well, see them to the end of our journey, and we see them onto the formal journey, and then we don't know really enough about how they perform. So the, the, the questions we're asking are, did you study informally first? What did you study? Why did you study? How has it helped you? And then the data analytics will show us, were they better retained? Um, we ran a pilot of this survey on a business of football course uh, last year, where the business school very cleverly launched a free course around about the time of the World Cup, and that fed students straight into um, a a, a new BA in Sport Management. And we surveyed those people who'd signed up to the BA and we said to them, okay, did you study informally first? Because a great deal of them came off the back of the free course. And the responses that we got were small in number, so we haven't been able to really report it. But consistently, the responses were, I do feel better motivated, I certainly feel better prepared, but nothing prepared me for the amount of time I was going to have to put in. And I don't think there's anything we can do about that in the informal learning space because you are studying at your own pace. Um, So that was just a very uh, small nugget that we took away from that study, but the numbers were too small to do anything with it. We're hoping that this year's study will give us much richer data in that regard.
3: Can I chiefly give my answer to Pete? Well, I would say for a student who's never done (coughs) OU study before, there are really two unknowns. There's kind of what it is you're actually going to ask to be do. what is studying online like, and OpenLearn can answer that. And then there's kind of the amount of this and the amount of planning needed, and as Katrina said, OpenLearn can't really help with that, but at least having done the informal learning, they know what it is they're going to be asked to do for eight hours a week. So they'll be in a much better place to judge if they can fit that into their life than if they had no sort of pre- preparation. So I would expect it would help. But yeah.
0: you have another question there? Oh,
1: uh, I was interested where you said um, you're going to extend your strategy batch courses to support higher apprenticeships transferring leavers from vocational learning to higher education. Well, did, could you just talk a
0: little bit more about that? Yeah,
1: the higher apprenticeships world is very interesting to us because they're um, many, many frameworks for the different higher apprenticeships, and um, we think there's possibly a role in OpenLearn to support those frameworks. In a say for example, there's a generic element to several of them around maths that we could provide that for free. So that's something we're exploring in terms of supporting higher apprenticeships. We haven't quite got a clear strategy that I can talk to at the moment, but that's the thinking. Is that you know student numbers are falling higher apprenticeships are rising, if formal learning's got potentially got a role in there so that every person isn't having to develop a framework for every single higher apprenticeship. Perhaps there's something we can leverage in the middle for free. <coughs> Possibly there is there are higher apprenticeships at the Open University already that are paid for, but this is more a view of how that might look generically. But given that we're about to go to the next election we're just having to wait to see
0: what the
1: next government yeah. wants
2: to do in that regard. <coughs> yeah. um, sorry. Um, First of all, thank you. <laughs> the stats are fascinating, they really are really Um I'm intrigued by the use of the word learning in it. Um, so this notion that we can offer free learning, as we know learning is an expensive and hard work activity. What we offer is free teaching. Do your stats tell you anything about how much is learned, um, as opposed to people learning how to use the operating system? How much do they learn about the content?
0: Well, I would say that that's where we we can learn more from the badged courses, because we have statistics about the um, assessed parts of, of that. Um, in terms of the um, non-badged, totally unsupported um, content, it is much more difficult to get a sense of, of what is learned. Having said that, we have got qualitative data from people talking about their learning experience and talking about their journey from, uh, in terms of acquiring concept knowledge and um, acquiring skills. So we do have that in our, in our qualitative data to to a certain extent and some, Some faculties who've got the
1: time to assess specific courses are asking for a start and end of course survey on those individual courses that test your knowledge at the beginning and your knowledge at the end but we can't do that for 850 courses we can only do that where the faculty is going to use that data and some of that does exist, particularly for the business school, people want to know um, what has been learnt did, what did you learn we can only see from the quizzes as Leanne says from a completely generic perspective did people pass or fail did they fall over at particular points it would be good to dig deeper but we're quite resource light when it comes to evaluation of specific subject areas
2: it absolutely fascinating to compare say eight weeks <coughs> in open learning in terms of how much they learned compared to, say, eight weeks in FutureLearn and eight weeks in a paid, a fee paid module.
4: Anyone? Yeah. Hi. Um, thanks also. Um, I'm an accessibility specialist for the faculty at uh, HSC, and um, I'm interested in um, the uh, fact that you've said that 31% of... Um, open students have declared a disability. Um, that was from the pilot. From the, the pilot, pilot, sorry, yes. From the bag,
1: when we piloted badging, yeah. um, those, for those two courses, there a 21%
4: disability. And also, elsewhere, there were quite high uh, numbers. It was in the 20s, 20, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. And um, so I'm wondering, um, given that it's drawing disabled students in quite high numbers, what are you learning about... Um, how well you're meeting their needs and what is it that we can learn from you or or is yet to be sort of modified to adjust it to fit their needs well?
1: Well I'm looking at Annie who might have some answers to that later this year because Annie is actually working with a group of people who've said they're happy to be contacted who declared a disability to see how we are or are not serving their needs. At a very top level it the, the if you could Say that the majority of comments were about X and Y. They were about formats. It was purely about format downloading, not subject areas, but access to particular types of format. Um, the, the, the kind of deeper understanding hopefully will be picked up by IET. Um, but having said that, Ingrid, if you want to look at the data, you're very welcome to, because we if there is so much data and there were so many responses. That um, we're happy for other people to mm-hmm. so cut it in whatever way they think is going to serve their needs. Mm-hmm. So, if you have an interest in it,
0: just, yes, so yeah, just yeah. Just adding to that, um, Tru and I are both OER Research Hub fellows, and the data sets will be openly released as part of the OER Research Hub mm-hmm. global data set. And, and one advantage of that is it allows comparison with other open initiatives mm-hmm. around the world, and I think mm-hmm. that's, that's really powerful. Rather than just looking, comparing ourselves over a number of years, comparing with,
4: with other initiatives, for example, say the Saber foundation, mm-hmm. is um, it gives us a sense of perspective. Yeah. I think that would be really useful, especially things like the quizzes, where we're currently doing work on how to make them more accessible. So to be able to see how mm-hmm. accessible your students are finding them, it useful. To them?
0: Okay, I have one last question, if I may. Uh, similar to Ingrid, given that you um, you know that about a fifth of the students who are accessing the material don 't have English as a first language, um, are you looking at any kind of adjustments in the level of the language or for example providing transcription um, subtitling in English for the English recordings and things like that?
1: all, all the video and audio have transcripts yes but we haven 't modified the commissioning approach for non-native English speakers. It was just an interesting group. In fact, when we looked at that group in particular, most of them were in the UK. Okay. So they were folk in the UK don't have English as the first language, um, which was interesting on its own, but we haven't made any particular changes for them. But everything is transcripted on the site. Okay.
0: Okay, we're going to have a break now until 11 o'clock. And then at 11, we will have Professor Mike Sharples talking about future learning.